Today's sponsor is Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person racing Ashton Kutcher to 1 billion Twitter followers, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Ashton Kutcher, who I've known a very long time, but he's an actor who has starred in shows like Two and a Half Men and also the Netflix series The Ranch, which just released its second season. In 2013, he played Steve Jobs in the movie Jobs. But he's also a tech investor who has put his own money into companies that you might have heard of, like Airbnb, Duolingo, Secret, and, oh yeah, Uber. And full disclosure, he's also an advisor to Recode's parent company, Vox Media. Ashton, you get around here. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Anyway, so... Your, your key sponsor is also an investment. Oh, my So goodness. I just have to disclose that just oh in case there's God. some, like, SEC issue with that. Yeah. You sleep on a Casper mattress then? I, I don't sleep on a Casper mattress only because I already have my mattress after I invested. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the new home, we'll, we'll, I'm going to definitely oh God, outfit it with Casper. You're like everywhere. You're like the smoking man. Um, but let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about you, Ashton. So talk about the show right now because you've had like let's talk about the Hollywood part of your career, and then the second part we'll talk about your investments, which yeah. are extensive. You're now doing a Netflix show after being on a major network, and you were on a network for much of your career and in doing movies and things like that. Talk a little bit about that transition, or if it's one at all for you. Yeah, I well, I was doing Two and a Half Men, and as I, I was wrapping it up, there was a conversation I was having with one of my best friends, Danny Masterson, who's my co-star and, and also a producer on The Ranch. And we were talking about doing a show together again. We, we'd done that 70s show together years and years ago mm-hmm. and had always wanted to do a show together. And, and the writers from Two and a Half Men were talking about uh, wanting to do a show together again. And so we all started to have a conversation about what that might be. And I really only have one place that I wanted to take it, which is Netflix. Um, Why? Why is that? Well, uh, first of all, I had already had a conversation with Ted Sarandos, who mm-hmm. runs the programming there. And I, I knew that he wanted to get into the sitcom arena. And I knew that he, they hadn't gotten into the sitcom arena, at least with original sitcoms. And I thought there was a chance to actually really advance what a sitcom looked like and felt like and sounded like and the kinds of content that were in it and the kinds of actors that you could have on it. And so the idea of doing a sitcom in a place where there were kind of no set rules and, and nobody knew what worked sort of opened up the landscape of what could be possible. Sometimes you get in, in, inside of these sort of, sort of factory content machines um, mm-hmm. that have been doing it for years and years and years and years, and they have to cater to certain advertisers and they have to cater to a certain ideology, they have to cater to a certain format. But you're calling that the entire studio television system, essentially. Well, I mean, historically, yeah. So like network television that actually generally does the sitcom format, you know, there's there's a format there that works. And it's mm-hmm. a format that's worked for years and years and years and years and years. And I think it's why most sitcoms tend to look the same and feel the same and have, you know, be, they're lit the same. They never have music underneath their scenes. They rarely take time to go into dramatic pause because they have to fit into this like neat little 22-minute box that advertisers will like. From a content perspective, you can't be very specific about jokes or products because it might interrupt with one of their advertisers. You can't talk the way that people naturally talk and use whatever language people naturally use because that might offend somebody. And so you get kind of pressed down into this little box, and, and there are a lot of people that are very good at making that really good version of that kind of show. 
And I thought doing something with Netflix would give us the opportunity to really creatively go out and try to reset what a sitcom is because I think people really like sitcoms, but I think they've become tired over time because they're just the same. All right. So, but you've made your career in sitcoms. I mean, the '70s show was an enormous hit, or considered an enormous hit, and so was Two and a Half Men. Absolutely. So, uh, th- I mean, there's there's audience for it. I just think that that you know, after you get about twenty, thirty, fifty episodes in, your creative bug starts yeah. to die because you can't really sort of you can't really build on. It. You can't really kind of go outside of the box. And uh, on this show, you know, from as a, from a producing perspective, we've been able to like create weather inside of a studio we go outside we go inside you know we can really push the, the what what the content is like all the way to the edge we hired Sam Elliott who's not a sitcom actor to mm-hmm. be on a sitcom show and Deborah Winger who's not a sitcom actor to be mm-hmm. on a sitcom and and I I feel like we we've, we've been able to sort of start to press into a creative boundary that I don't think we would ever be able to get to and get away with it at a network and so Netflix was your first choice because they've been what what about them creates that for you because it's also not just Netflix is Amazon it's eventually Google presumably yeah. so Facebook I, I think that they have a culture there mm-hmm. that trust creators to create um, they really don't interfere with our creative process at all uh, at a traditional network you get you know a list of notes at the end of a rehearsal before you ended up shooting something that would you know you have to change the creative integrity of the show we don't get give those me an notes. example um, you know it could be a joke that they feel like is too crass it could be you know what, where a character is heading, or the the direction of a character, or the you, the way a character is behaving, or it could be. It's just this litany of things where you go, I don't understand why. Explain, give give me like some 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 ground level reasoning as to why you want these things, mm-hmm. and we'll pursue them. And it's usually just because, well, well, we can't do that. Right. And it's I think it's just a lot of people afraid of getting fired, mm-hmm. um, yes, which which it. tends to be the culture at companies that are slightly more seasoned. Um, and and at Netflix, we don't have that. I, I think the other thing is, is uh, you know, because of the way they actually know who's watching the show instead of how many are watching the show, you can start to cater your creative towards the people that actually love the content that you're creating. And I think that in a lot of ways that's freeing and it, and it makes them a little bit more confident around the decision-making process internally. So what involvement do they have with you? So you bring it to them, you brought it to them, and you didn't bring it to the networks. Yeah, I, we, we took the show to one place. We had a script and myself and Danny Masterson and said, we want to make this show. They read the script. We had a conversation about what we wanted to do and that we wanted to make a show about a conservative family in the middle of America with conservative views and where we're not making fun of people in the middle of America, but embracing those views and making fun of the coast. And they thought that there was a great opportunity for them to grow into those markets and that this is the kind of show that could help them do that. Mm-hmm. And so what involvement do they have now? They just You just make it and they... Um, no, I mean, we have executives that come to our table read and executives that come, you know, they're with us all week long, but they're really our partners and, and they're supporting us. And, and I think as opposed to a lot of networks where you have, you get notes that are prescriptive around what they want changed and how they want it changed. You know, they'll point things out to us that are, uh, you know, story arcs that they feel like could be strengthened or, or character arcs that they feel like could be strengthened. But it's, it's never like a prescriptive note relative to, to the stuff that we're building. Do you imagine this is the way it's going to be for creators? Because here's someone like you, again, who's benefited from the system that had been created, got famous that way. Did, was that a big? Was it a difficult shift for you to go to Netflix, where the audience is smaller necessarily, or but it's more particular, obviously? And they've so, had a couple well, of hits. Like, so yeah, so Netflix what? won't 
share our numbers with us explicitly, Mm -hmm. but we've done a little bit of reverse engineering (laughs) relative to the success of some other shows. (laughs) And uh, I know a couple of companies that have the ability to do some reverse engineering on social. (laughs) I think our audience is is, uh, well in the neighborhood of network television shows, Mm -hmm. um, and I think it'll only grow over time. But but as a well-known person who's been in sitcoms, did you worry about making... Because some, some people have it are worried about moving away from the old model, moving away from movies, moving away from all kinds of things. Um, yeah, no, I don't. I've kind of like flipped between television and th- feature films my entire career. And, and I, I just like to build things. I don't really care whether it's, you know, whether it's a technology company or whether it's a television show or whether it's a movie or whatever it is, it's... It's for me. It's about just sort of exercising that creative bug and and trying to build something great that impacts people. I think I think the only question I would have is if I'm going to spend time and energy on something, I want to make sure that it's hitting an audience where what we're trying to do actually has some impact. Mm-hmm. Because I think you know this show on its face early on, it won't look like there's a very big social push relative to it. But I think over time, people will start to see that there are real social hooks in this show that we're mm-hmm. actually trying to trying to connect with a mind frame and you know hone that mind frame towards maybe a little bit more open-minded perspectives. So explain that. What do you mean social hooks? What would that be? So you know the first 20 episodes of the show are really more just sort of like fun down home kind of stuff. We're dealing with like family relationships, internal family relationships, things that are going on. <laughs> and anybody who's watched this new set I don't want to give away too much, but the very last episode has a pretty, pretty aggressive cliffhang uh, mm-hmm. on it. And there's a, uh, another character, Wilmer Valderrama, who was also on the 70s show with us, that gets introduced. And Wilmer's an immigrant labor mm-hmm. uh, worker working at one of the ranches that's a local ranch. And I think that immigration is this really abstract thing that becomes this sort of policy conversation in, in the public zeitgeist. But when you connect with someone and actually have feelings for somebody who is an immigrant, I think that conversation is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then I'll, I won't give it away, but the cliffhang of the last set of episodes, there's an event that happens that I think will dive very, very deep into uh, an issue that is a polarizing issue in our country. And we'll look at both perspectives uh, in a slightly deeper way than, than maybe usually gets done. Uh, so whether Skittles are dangerous or not, right? That's right. It's, <laughs> it's whether Skittles are dangerous or not. What's with this candy stuff going on? And this Tic Tac Skittles. <laughs> They're going after Red Vines next, I'm sure of it. Um, but, but Just you, vilify the vilify Tic Tac. The Tic Tac people were pissed about that. I bet that. I bet no, they are. Put a statement out. Altoid's just going crazy right now. <laughs> Put all your money into Altoid. <laughs> Um, so when you're thinking about this idea of, of doing all these shows at once, when you're talking about the cliff, and you, those are sort of old terms because these things drop all at once. Well, they're old terms, but but uh, relative to the way sitcom format has... Mm-hmm. So sitcom has become this incredible financial engine for mm-hmm. television, especially for studios, where you don't want the, any of the episodes to be too deeply intertwined from a mm-hmm. storytelling perspective. Right, you want them to, to have resolution. And when you go into syndication cycle, you can sell them in bundles and they can air them in any order that they want. And right. they don't have to count on the audience coming back week to week to stay with the storyline. Like Phoebe's riding a bike this week. Next week, she has a cab or something. Sure. Right. Um, and so each episode almost lives as their own independent little story. Whereas on Netflix, given the binge watching nature where people are going to watch 10 episodes in a row, now all 20 of our episodes are up there. And so there are people that are going to start today and watch all 20 as one rip. Mm-hmm. I think there's a different way that you tell stories relative to that, um, different ways that you carry character arcs. 
And the cliffhanger in traditional television, especially in sitcoms, has somewhat disappeared given the syndication cycle and, mm-hmm. the, and the way they resell these shows afterwards. And we got to bring it back to life in mm-hmm. our show. Like the who shot JR right. of our show becomes really, really important and valuable because it's what gets you to the next episode. Right. The most valuable thing on Netflix is the next episode. Mm-hmm. And it has to be the next episode. So you're constantly architecting your story in order to create that the value in the mm-hmm. next episode. Mm-hmm. And how what else can you do to be creative in that manner? Like okay, if you're dropping 20 episodes at once, which some people like and some people don't like, I think it's fantastic. But it creates a whole new viewer experience. Yeah, so from a comedy perspective, you know, it, there's like functions of jokes um, mm-hmm. where you can actually drop the setup for a joke in one episode and then pay it off in the next episode mm-hmm. because you have a pretty good inclination that people are going to carry over and watch the next one. You can carry, you know, various like props across episodes. You can start a storyline in episode three and finish it in episode five. And so it really enli- it really like opens up the writer's room mm-hmm. to have to create an arc over a series of episodes as opposed to an individual episode, and whether it's a comedic arc or whether it's a dramatic arc. Well, dram- it works with dramatic arcs. It also works with comedic arcs. Yeah, yeah. So what do you imagine it going? So you, what do you consider success of what you're doing here with Netflix? We want to create a great show. Um, we want to create a, th- that show that you get off at the end of your day and you go home and you watch this. Um, for Netflix, I think uh, the measure of success with this particular show is to open up markets that that weren't necessarily that aren't going to watch, you know, House of Cards or maybe like aren't into the sort of more urban fair shows mm-hmm. that that end up on the network. I think we can open up domestic markets, and I think we mm-hmm. can open up some international markets mm-hmm. that really appreciate comedy and where this community exists. Uh, in South America, it has a huge ranching culture. Um, we're doing extremely well there. We're doing mm-hmm. extremely well in a couple markets in Europe right now. But where, where we're showing, I think, the most growth, which is really exciting, is in the middle of America. So I think it turns on this different viewing behavior uh, mm-hmm. to a whole different market that didn't have access to it before. Did you ever think of that? What markets work for you when you're ma- making your past sitcoms? Or you just, you're just sort of throwing this massive thing out there? Well, so let's be clear. So my first sitcom, The yeah. 70s Show, yeah. I was 19 years old yeah. and happy so to have a think, job, yes, right? I, was, I moved to Los <laughs> Angeles and booked it the first day I was in Los Angeles. So I was just like, I'm making a lot of money to stand in front of people and try to be funny. Um, that was So that's how that happened. Uh, <laughs> so you had no say. And two and a half men, I made a joke about how much money Charlie Sheen must have been making and that I would take that job and got a call like the next day and went, um, really, you want me to do this? Yeah, I'll bite. I'll jump on that <laughs> grenade. And and so I, I wasn't really, and given the fact that I wasn't a producer on either of those, I really didn't have like right. a, a, a consciousness about it. I, I think like, and Punked, which was an early thing that I produced, yeah. I, I was just, you know, making fun and trying to have fun and, and I, you know, I definitely thought like as we were casting various people to punk on the show and as we would architect those into like, th- there were like three segments to each show. Mm-hmm. And as we architected every one of those episodes, I thought about the demos and I thought about the the general demos and who these various people would be appealing mm-hmm. to. You know, this is really the first show like Soup to Nuts that I'm in that that I, I think I had to have that kind of consciousness I, I think about. what I'm trying to get at is that you have power now that you didn't have before necessarily in this system. Um, yeah, I, I suppose. Well, you have more, creators have more power in the system because you have options and different places you can go. And Well, I think that's the nature of what's happening with the digital landscape, right? Like before you only had X number of buyers and you were happy if any of them were interested. Right. And now I think that I, I think you can architect a story that you want to tell and you can shop it directly to 
who you think has the most relevance to your audience. All right. We're here with Ashton Kutcher. We're talking about changes in Hollywood and changes in his own career. When we get back, we're going to be talking about his investments because he's a very successful investor in many Silicon Valley companies. Casper made a perfect mattress and sells it directly to consumers to save you money. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Shipping to both the U.S. and Canada is completely free, and there's a 100-day risk-free trial and return policy. If you don't love your Casper mattress, they'll pick it up and refund everything. These mattresses are made in America. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com recode and using the promo code recode. Stop paying for the mattress industry's inflated prices. Go to casper.com slash R-E-C-O-D-E and use the promo code RECODE. Terms and conditions apply. I'd also like to tell you about Code Commerce, which is a live event series we've started this year. And I'm here with the host of Code Commerce, Jason Del Rey. Hello, Kara. How you doing? I'm doing great today. Good. So the next event in the Code Commerce series is coming up. Tell us about it. It's October 25th in Las Vegas during the Money 2020 Payments Conference. So you and I are going to go to see some shows and gamble and what else? We'll be interviewing Stripe co-founder John Collison, who has a $5 billion payment startup. We're going to find out how we got to that number Mm -hmm. and why and how he's trying to help entrepreneurs across the globe not only accept payments, but start businesses. Yeah, so these payments companies are starting to get really big, like Square and Stripe and some others, and they're sort of competing to change the way people are paid and how, how payments are done by businesses. Yeah, they're trying to make it super easy for any developer to get up and uh, start accepting credit card payments, Bitcoin payments. I don't know if anyone does that anymore. That was about a yeah. year. And they're trying to go global really fast in sort of unique ways uh, without a lot of people on the ground. So the whole point is getting rid of all currencies someday and just figuring out a way to do digital everything in payments. Well, we can ask them that. I think they're trying to just, you know, what they'll say is they're, they're trying to cross borders in a digital way so that an entrepreneur on the other side of the globe can sell to U.S. consumers, and there's oh. no reason that shouldn't be. Well, I have to get rid of my backpack full of gold then. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. I hope to see some of our listeners there. Code Commerce is an invitation-only event October 25th in Las Vegas during the Money 2020 conference, as Jason said. For all the details and to apply for an invitation, visit recode.net slash events. We're here with Ashton Kutcher, who is a renaissance man of Hollywood and entertainment, I would say. I think people do, people do have a sense that you have lots and lots of tech investments, and you, but you have some very good ones, actually. You've been in a lot of things, but you mentioned two or, or one or two already. Talk a little bit about your investments, because people realize how long you've been at it, because a lot of celebrities sort of enter the investment picture, and they're sort of just part of a press release versus really active investing. Yeah, I would say now is probably not the best time to start entering. Um, <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, it's uh, tough times. So you started off with a – talk about your various investment groups because they've changed over time. Yeah, so I, I, well, I started off just in, in, investing as an independent person. I was, uh, I was running a production company, and uh, I saw buffering speeds start to pick up on, online mm-hmm. and realized there was going to be a migration of content delivery in, into that space. I was an avid Facebook user and – an avid YouTube user and, and trying to promote a lot. It's funny, like when I was doing Dude Where's My Car, which mm-hmm. seems like really long time, I would, get into, I would get into AOL chat Unsung rooms. Okay. I, would, I would get into un, uh, AOL chat rooms uh-huh. and start to like, just start Dude Sweet threads uh-huh. and then leave that chat room and go to the next one. and start. So I was like trying to like 
you know, like digitally hack audience acquisition online, like then. Um, and then when I, when I was running my production company, I wanted to actually turn it into something that we could use. And so I started looking for different ways to, to, to quantify digital audience and things like that. And uh, started making a couple early investments in companies that were doing that. And, uh, and then as I, as I started doing that, I started just opening up this canvas of opportunity with various founders that they would reach out to me. And I was like, well, I don't know how I'm associated with this company or that company, mm-hmm. but I'll give it a shot. And then I think my race with, on Twitter with CNN brought light to the fact that I had a slight understanding as to yeah, how to use these yeah. tools. And then, so I invested in Square, um, which is Jack Dorsey's financial transaction platform because mm-hmm. I got to know him through Twitter. I invested in Foursquare and uh, a couple, a company called Optimizely, mm-hmm. a couple early things just on my own with my own money. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, they called you. They called you, correct? You had been investing? Or? I think I, it was either they called me or I called them. I invested in a company called GroupMe because mm-hmm. a, a friend of mine I introduced me to them. And uh, and I invested in Skype early on. What was your criteria? Just... Um, I, I think it was it was mostly just really relative to the product and the usability of the product mm-hmm. and then really just being willing to be the stupidest person in the room mm-hmm. like I was hanging out with really brilliant people mm-hmm. and they would they you know we'd have a com- an open conversation about you know this company or that company and they'd sell me on it I'd use the product and I'd go wow this is actually really useful or wow this is actually really interesting and then I'd meet with the founder and say hey I'd like to invest and then mm-hmm. back then nobody was investing well, at least no actors were investing. Mm-hmm. And I think that they thought, hey, well, I can get a nice little press pop out of this. Right, right. Um, and then I really just started to do relatively well and kind of doubled down on it. Um, and my current investing partner, Guy Osiri, reached out to me and said, hey, I think I could raise us some money. I was like, good, because I'm running out. Like, I keep <laughs> investing in these things on my own. I don't know how much longer I can do this. And, and so then we met with our third partner at the time, Ron Burkle, mm-hmm. and we created A-Grade, um, where Ron put up a, a lion's share of the finances. Guy and I put up some of our own money, and we built that fund out um, and then started a second fund. And now that fund is in harvest mode, but we ended up investing in Airbnb and Uber and House and a series of other companies that have all done really, really well. Um, and then uh, Guy and I decided we wanted to do a bigger fund. And so we branched off and built our own investment uh, fund called Sound Ventures, which is our current fund. And so now we have an early stage fund and a late stage so fund. So how much total have you invested? The new fund, um, we've invested around $30 million. Wow, okay. And that's how much you've raised? From who? No, no, we've raised more than that. We've more invested that much. That much, okay. How much have you raised total? Uh, we raised about $130 million. Yeah. Was that difficult? We have two LPs, one LP for our early stage fund and one LP for our follow-on fund. And who's the second LP? Ron Burkle is obviously the first one. No. Nope. Um, actually, Live Nation is the LP for our early stage fund, mm-hmm. and Liberty Capital is the LP for our late stage So that's fund. easy. You don't have to ha- deal with a lot of LPs, right? It's, it makes it very, very yeah. easy. So w- and they're very generous towards us with helping with uh, our back office and mm-hmm. helping diligence deals. And it's also, when you, when you have a single LP like that, you can start to target focus your investments relative to some of their needs as well, mm-hmm. uh, which which only just sort of broadens your scope of what you right. can invest in. And so how much time do you spend on your investing? I want to go through all the investments, too, that you made because, you know... Do you, I have to you, break you, out my... No, 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 you don't have to. <laughs> but um, you, you kind of talk like you sort of stumbled into it, but I don't think that's necessarily the case here. Well, I really, because, I, you know, it, you're already doing better than most VCs on these guesses you've made. Yeah. 
which makes you think either it's a lot easier or it's a lot harder. I think it's, I think it's a couple of things. So one, I think that we have a very, very focused agenda as to how we invest. Mm-hmm. Um, one, we're founders first, um, and we believe that every great company is built on the back of really, really brilliant founders. Um, and, and we have criteria for the founders um, relative to their grit, relative to their ability to sell their product, relative to their domain expertise. We have a, a series of things that we vet our founders on. And I think that that's like the first thing. Because at the end of the day, companies are run by people. And if you can understand people, mm-hmm. you can understand what companies may or may not so work. when you're saying grit, I'm assuming you're, you're referring to the book that everyone in Silicon Valley loves to talk about. But I've read like six books on, on it. Grit. Um, okay. There's a great book called The Willpower Instinct mm-hmm. that's really wonderful and sort of lays out a lot of the qualities relative to grit. So um, what are you looking for in there? So the first thing I look for in a founder is... is did they have like a hustle when they were young? Like, because mm-hmm. I think entrepreneurs are, were always entrepreneurs, and mm-hmm. whether whether it's like selling blow pops out of their high school locker or like selling makeup back to their aunt that they would take from you know, like everybody's got some hustle when they mm-hmm. were a kid. But my assessment of grit is: tell me the hardest thing that you actually managed to persevere through. And so, and it starts with having a passion for whatever you're building or the, or, or, or the essence of the problem that you're solving. And if, if you have a gumption about you or a disdain for the problem that you have, mm-hmm. the likelihood of you persevering through some great obstacle that you meet along the way is going to be relatively high. And so I'd like to find out the things that, that those people are passionate about and how they've actually persevered through obstacles in order to attain whatever their goals might be. And, you know, that's just, that's a series of questions that aren't about the company. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, like, you, you hear investors that get on the phone, the first thing they start asking about is the company, and they forget to ask about who are you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's one of our, that's one of the, the sort of core things that, that we look at uh, really, really deeply. And, and once they sort of, they can demonstrate some version of them trying to persevere through the problem, or they can identify the problems that are going to come to them in their company, so whether it's regulatory, regulatory hair on the company, whether it's having to being extraordinarily well-versed in their competition and their relative advantages to their competition and whatever landscape that they're trying to, trying to build into, I think all of those things start to signal that that person's going to be able to persevere because there's not a day that goes by when you're building a company that you don't have a problem, especially when you're running it. Um, I'm going to ask you more about your investment, but why didn't you ever build a tech company? Um, you seem like a hustler at 12. I've tried, um, and I haven't been successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the biggest things about building a tech company um, and another attribute is that you have to have a technical founder mm-hmm. that understands and cares about the business as much as you do, whatever it may be. Um, and I say I, I haven't done it successfully, so that's probably not completely true. I, I built a company called A+, Plus, uh, mm-hmm. that's a media company. Um, we just sold that company to Chicken Soup for the Soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're trying to do just baseline positive journalism. So any story that's out there, we try to find a positive spin or an inspiring spin or an optimistic spin on the, on, on the story. Um, so that, that company has been and continues to be successful. And then, uh, What didn't work for you when you said you weren't successful? What didn't work doing it? Um, I would say like relative to like an Uber or an Airbnb yeah. or like one of these companies that yeah. became like these sort of behemoth like yeah. let me build a new industry I wasn't right. building a new industry right. so I wouldn't and say media is hard to scale I think media is extremely hard to scale but I, I also wouldn't say that this is like a a tech company per se I would say it's a media company given the fact that it has 
given the fact that it's we have built some technical tools that are first generation technical tools, but I I don't think that it has like I don't think it it has the same sort of technical domain advantage that some of these other companies do. Right, that Uber and um, I would say probably my most successful startup is my nonprofit, mm-hmm. Thorn. Um, we build software to help police departments prioritize caseload and mm-hmm. identify and recover trafficking victims and uh, victims of sexual exploitation of children. Mm-hmm. And so we're currently in all 50 states. We have 1,775 police officers or law enforcement officials using our tools to mm-hmm. recover trafficking victims. And this year we've recovered or identified like 6,000 trafficking victims. And you worked with tech companies to do that, correct? Yeah, so we built a technical task force and worked with a, a, a myriad of tech companies to do it. And then we designed a product with a company called Digital Reasoning that helped us build the product. Um, and now we've we've deployed it and it's it's doing extremely well. And this is a nonprofit? This is a nonprofit, non-profit. yeah. What prompted you to do that? Uh, I saw a, a Dateline special years ago on human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And I saw these like six and seven year old kids um, being sold for sex. And I thought it was repulsive. And, and as I looked out and tried to find groups that were actually doing something effective to, to solve it, there weren't very many. Um, and there was certainly none uh, doing it in the digital domain. And I saw like, well, I saw a statistic that said that 75% of the transactions around sex are happening online. And I thought that in the same way that you can build a business online, you can the only way you're going to disintermediate that business is to actually go online and fight it online. Um, but there wasn't really uh, any group that had uh, any kind of technical domain mm-hmm. expertise uh, relative to that area that would be able to to do anything. So we built one. Well, that's astonishing. And now it's now it's still deployed. You still run it, or you have people running? I'm not the CEO of it. I'm I'm the chairman of the board, and uh, I, my former executive director Julie Corja is now the CEO of it. But it's still running and and uh, doing extremely well. And we're building a bunch of other tools in the space. I can't mm-hmm. really talk about, but. So getting back to the other investments, some of the, the ones that, that have done really well, and we've talked about it, Uber. Mm-hmm. You were quite early there, correct? Travis pitched me <laughs> the company when he didn't have any investors. Right. Um, very, very early. And, and what I, did you think? I didn't quite get it right off the bat. That's because you have limousines all the time, Ashton. Um, well... That may have been a little bit of a limiting factor. Like I didn't, I was like, why would people pay more to get a black car? Uh And it wasn't until I got my head around the idea that eventually people would pay less to have a black car that I really understood the value of the company. Mm -hmm. And that was, it didn't take that long, but it took longer than I would have liked. What did you think when he pitched you? Speaking of grit, that guy has grit to spare. Yep. I thought it was interesting. There, there were a couple other people sort of toying with this ride-sharing idea, right? Where it was like, uh, I, and, I, and I'd been pitched a couple other companies that were, you know, list your car and share your vehicle. And I actually thought it would end up falling. I, I thought the person that would win that space would end up being one of these like ride-hitching platforms mm-hmm. and not necessarily a company that had these sort of high-end vehicles, like this sort of, I didn't, I didn't kind of understand the lux value in the space. I thought it would end up being one of these, like, you know, almost like the Uber X model that yeah. would win out. Um, and it so happens that I think that that model is the model that ultimately wins out. But it, I think he started top down, built his brand with the lux model, and, and then, then and then, and then moved down. 
Why did you invest? What, what, did, what did it make you do if you saw all these others and thought something different? Um, eventually, I saw a product market fit. Um, you know, I think we ended up investing in like the B round, mm-hmm. and it was pretty clear that there was a product market fit there and growth. And then, uh, and then I started looking at where the real hair on the company was, um, which is regulatory. We and, talked about that a lot. And, and, and I started realizing that the regulatory hair, that there was, it was like bizarre in many places. Like mm-hmm. in Denver, you couldn't have a black car within two miles or within like two city blocks of an establishment that was selling alcohol. It was, mm-hmm. it was like some like weird random law that was on the books for mm-hmm. generations. And I realized that you know this was just a monopoly trying to hold on to, to their ground. And uh, there was enough momentum behind the company that I that I thought it could push through. And same thing goes for Airbnb. I mean, mm-hmm. I think a lot of these very different founders, very very different founders, both equally passionate about their business. I think a different tact towards the way they build their business, mm-hmm. but I think they both have like all of the qualities uh, that it takes to sort of push through to the next. And level. when you saw that, what did you think? Airbnb. Yeah. Uh, once again, I think I saw that in the Series B. Yeah. Um, really. There was a clear product market fit. It was growing. I think that, I think uh, somebody had put something into my ear that I think Peter Thiel's probably like established like his foothold on um, around making investments in companies that have non-intuitive properties, where uh, whatever people's re- intuition is about one thing or another so happens to be not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that when you do that, there's green grass for days and days on end. Right, that is um, a Peter Thielian thing. And uh, somebody planted that in my ear at one point, and when I saw Airbnb growing the way that it was growing, I was like, this is totally counterintuitive. I don't know, you, I mean, who's going to open up their house to a stranger and let them sleep in their spare bedroom? Like, is that, and it was so, it was just, the, the evidence was all over that that was going to happen. And so, I downloaded the app and started trying it, and it was amazing. It was like an extraordinary experience where I got more for less. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, when, when these companies work, they have that quality. Also, my partner at the time was Ron Burkle, and Ron w- had a lot of investments in the hotel space. So I understood the value. He coached me up on the value of investing in hotels and why they have some impervious qualities in shifting market conditions. And mm-hmm. what I realized is that Airbnb had that same quality, right. that people were still going to travel no matter what the market conditions were. Right. And that, in fact, they would be looking for a more economic, resourceful well, way to do hotels so. aren't impervious, as it turns out, well, not to Airbnb. So finish up here and then talk about where you think investments in Hollywood are going. But what, what is an investment you made that didn't work out? Oh, tons of them. I think you mentioned one, Secret. <laughs> oh, Secret. That's um, right. Oh, I forgot you were in that. Yeah, that that one didn't work out. Why? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. Like, the anonymous space for um, chat and conversation, I think, is something that maybe we want to have happen, but people aren't ready to have happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of work being done in AI, um, actually Jared Cohen uh, from Jigsaw at Google just had an article on Wired that was talking about uh, launching AI to eliminate trolls from the web. Mm-hmm. And I think that once that technology gets deployed and works really well, I think that an anonymous chat or an anonymous social network could could work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was sort of a shot that we were taking that, you know, Whisper was kind of percolating yeah. 
secret was percolating. There were a couple of them that were percolating all at the same time, Yik Yak. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, we had made an investment in a company years ago called Like a Little. Um, I remember them. And that was a college campus version of Secret. And so we've liked that space in general because mm -hmm. we believe that there's a true market where people have public fear to talk about themselves in a very intimate way, mm -hmm. but would be willing to do so in an anonymous format. Or Snapchat. Snapchat-ish. Ish. And the privacy to it and ephemerality. Yeah. And, and I think that... Uh, I actually think when AI bots get released to eliminate trolling, I think those markets will be, work a lot better. We'll talk about that more. Which is one that you wish you had gotten into that you didn't, that you went, ah, oh, that's stupid. I passed on Snapchat twice. <laughs> Why? Um, Did he have better t-shirts than you? No, so I, I went on Twitter, and I do this like every about every six months. I went on Twitter, and I said, what's the new app that you're using, or what's the new product that you think is really cool? And there were two companies that, like, it was like uh, the writing was on the wall. It was like there were 10 responses that said Snapchat and 10 responses that said Tinder. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, hold on. And so I started using Tinder's product and playing mm -hmm. around with it. And I was like, this is amazing. The swipe left, swipe yeah. right. Like, just, just that simple product feature I thought was mm -hmm. outstanding. Like, just a beautiful piece of product. And I knew Sean Rad because he had a company called Adley that he mm -hmm. was uh, wanted me to invest in before that I passed on. And so I reached out to Sean and was like, trying to invest in Tinder and had a deal done and then found out that they had come out of an incubator that yep. was IAC owned and so therefore Very they couldn't raise money. So we had term sheets that got tore up, which really bummed me out. And then I looked at Snapchat's product and I hated the product. Yeah. I just thought it was like... You're the, too old. I, as young I, as you are. I, you actually, sure? I just thought that the product was like, it was a little crickety and yeah, a little rickety yeah. and a little not... It just wasn't beautiful or elegant. Yeah. And I have this like dumb personal pet peeve about that. And it really bugged me. And it wasn't until... So twice you did it. You hated well, I it twice. On, I passed on it twice because I just didn't like the product. Yeah. I did not like... And I know the dirty little secret that even though everyone thinks that there's privacy and they think that yeah. their information disappears, that it still sits on a server somewhere and that it's That's totally terrible. hackable over time. Evan doesn't like hearing that. But it's true. Well, I, I mean, he says it's not. But anyway, yes, well, yes. but but it is true. And so, uh, or at least it was when mm -hmm. I was looking at it. And they may have changed it. I don't know. Um, so I'm not going to be an authority on. But that really bothered me because I went, wait, the first hack where these kids are showing whatever pictures they're showing to each other mm -hmm. on this thing, the first hack that comes out, it's not going to be good for the company, and it's not going to be good for the users. And it really, really scared me. Yeah. And it wasn't until they launched their um, true messaging product that I saw Evan out somewhere. I was like, okay, that's a good product. <laughs> that's All how right. you said I, it. I, yeah, I did. <laughs> it was, <laughs> nice. was a little nicer than that. I like your T-shirt. Your supermodel girlfriend's fantastic. Fiance. Oh. She's really nice. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. She's always been All nice. All right, when we get back, we'll talk more with Ashton Kutcher <laughs> about where innovation is going and also where Hollywood's going. Today's show is sponsored by Oxford Road. Ever wonder how these ads on podcasts work? A startup pays a host like me to read a script about their disruptive product or service. We know you're choosing to listen, and that means you will probably, at the very least, give the product or service we mentioned a serious consideration. But what if you are one of those startups and want to advertise on a podcast? Where do you start? That's where Oxford Road comes in. It's a leading advertising agency in consumer tech. Companies like Dollar Shave Club, MeUndies, Blue Apron, and more started with Oxford Road. Oxford Road engineers ads to perform. 
They buy media based on over $100 million in performance data, and their world-class analytics and attribution methods give you confidence in every line of performance, just like digital. Go to OxfordRoad.com scale, set up a free analysis, and find out what it would cost you to test ads on a podcast, and maybe the next script I'll be reading will be yours. Go to OxfordRoad.com scale right now. FreshBooks is a super simple cloud accounting software that's helping over 5 million small businesses conquer their administrative and paperwork in less time with way less stress. It only takes 30 seconds to create and send a polished, professional-looking invoice. And customers who accept online payments with FreshBooks get paid three days faster on average. FreshBooks can even show you whether or not a client has looked at an invoice you've emailed. They also track your expenses, cash flow, and the time you're spending on each project. See how FreshBooks' thoughtful, intuitive design can make a huge difference in how you deal with your day-to-day paperwork. To get a free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com recode and enter recode decode in the how you heard about us section. That's freshbooks.com recode to start your 30-day free trial. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. And this week, we have a special bonus episode of Recode Media that will air on Tuesday. That is tomorrow. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Kara, guess who I'm here with? John Favreau, not the John Favreau you talked to, the other John Favreau. Say hi, John. Hey, Kara, how are you? John and I just talked about, well, we talked about politics, obviously, because right. John used to work at the White House, and he's still involved in politics. He's got a great podcast, we talked about Hillary, we talked about Donald, we talked about the state of the media, what am I missing? Uh, White House, Obama. John's early Facebook faux pas. All kinds of good stuff. All awesome stuff. You should listen in. It's good. Thanks. You can find Recode Media on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're here with Ashton Kutcher, who is sometimes acts in things, but is also a big investor. And so he has a new show out on Netflix called The Ranch, um, which he is a producer of, correct? That's right. Producer. And then also has continued to do investing now through your company with Guy Aseri called? Yes, Sound Ventures. Sound Ventures. So let's talk a little bit about where Hollywood's going first. Where is it moving? I've just talked recently to James Corden and others about where things are, are going and most people feel that the shifts that are happening in tech still haven't resonated in Hollywood yet. Do you think <laughs> who that? says that? Lots of people. They feel like they don't. They don't. They still are resisting it. Do you feel they don't? Oh, that's that's wrong. All right, come we'll on. That's you. not true. Uh, look at Netflix. Right. That's yeah. a shift in tech that has drastically affected yes, the market. Yes, but it was so resisted for so long until just recently. But still, like I mean, yeah. drastically, like to deny that that's absolutely right. affecting the market. I mean, I'm talking about the people who run Hollywood. Do you think they have got that? Well, the people who run Hollywood, who are they? I don't know. Who are they? Um, It's abundantly clear that there's an open market now for selling your shows, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're not locked into some studio deal that demands that you go to that network, Mm -hmm. you can take your show to a myriad of buyers, whether it's Netflix, uh, like I did, or whether it's Amazon Mm -hmm. or... Whether it, across the board, there's 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 an abundant number of content distributors that are starting to shift that market, and now that Netflix is spending billion plus on content creation, it's just pretty clear that the tide has already shifted. I, I met with Les Moonves years and years ago, and he said, when advertising is dollar for dollar internet to television, the whole thing is goes upside down, right? Mm-hmm. And right now, everybody's playing this like weird little arbitrage game with their television ad sales, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're spending a, a portion of that money to then sell to the advertisers online. 
and actually sell, well, actually sell as an advertiser yeah. online to get distribution around their content, right? right? And so they're playing this little arbitrage game that will continue to go until it's dollar for dollar, eyeball for eyeball. And I think that, that we're virtually there. And then it just becomes incumbent upon the digital platforms to have the same confidence that Netflix has had to actually spend the money on high-quality programming, and then it's game over. Well, it's not just high-quality programming. It's how we're doing programming. I mean, I, you can talk about VR. You can talk about mobile-only shows. You can talk about... I mean, I have a 14-year-old. He only watches on mobile. He only watches... You know, and I don't think he's uncommon. He doesn't yeah. like going to movies. He doesn't... He watches television of a sort. That's right. But I, but I, I, let's take VR off the table. Okay. Because I think everybody's way too overhyped on VR, and okay. it's just not time to play there yet, right? Like, I think VR is still pretty far off in the distance. If you consider even just the number of headsets that are going to be in the mm-hmm. market in the next and X they're still unwieldy and it, the whole it's the just, device is a problem. And, you know, you have to buy into this basic notion that people don't want the cut. Mm-hmm. People want the cut, right? Because the cut is what fast-forwards you through a story. Stories since the beginning of time, since you, people sat around a campfire and told stories, they cut their story. They mm-hmm. cut out the you know, the boring parts mm-hmm. and move through yeah, the yeah. interesting parts. That's how you tell a story. And the minute that you're forced into a platform where you don't get it cut relative to your right. storytelling, all of a sudden you get into this sort of ambiguous short-form zone that it has to be short in order to even right. engage an audience. Attention. So I think that there is a short-form content you know, I mean, first of all, digital owns short-form content. There's no other platform that owns that, and that's all. Those are all digital platforms. So that's done, signed, sealed, delivered. Digital owns that. It's the long-form co- content play that right now is sort of in the balance. Mm-hmm. Whether it's feature films going direct to digital or feature films that are going to get released in a theater, and a lot of them are going day and date now. Mm-hmm. Which the, the, I think there's this new deal with IPix, right? That somebody just did a new deal with the IPix that they're going to go day and date on all their on all their content. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just inevitable. It's just happening. Right. And what you does that mean for you as a creator? As a creator, um, more optionality. Like right now, I can still go to the dinosaurs and sell something to the dinosaur companies, mm-hmm. and I can go to the new companies. Do you actually call them dinosaurs when you go see them? Hi, I would call them a dinosaur to their face. They know they're dinosaurs. Yeah. There's not an executive that is at one of these tr- traditional terrestrial television distribution platforms that doesn't think that in some way, shape, or form. This is their last job. Well, no, not necessarily last job because they can move to digital platforms and, and become. Be, become t- content creators there, but like I think they know that that model of distribution is on the decline. There's, I mean, there's just absolute. Ev- it's like denying climate change. Yeah. There's evidence. There's legitimate, you know, statistical data that suggests your platform, your way of distributing mm-hmm. content is dying. So what happens to the? Hol- I know you say there's not people running it, but there is a system here, just like there's a Wall Street system, just like there's a banking system, all of which are a car system right now, which is going to be under siege is in the middle of being disrupted, obviously. So competition in some ways spurs innovation, which I think is good. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're seeing that happen. I think that a lot of the programming that's coming out on Netflix in particular is extraordinary programming because it's 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 being built on in this competitive base. And I actually think some of the programming on traditional television network I mean if you look at some of the content on HBO right now, like Game of Thrones is the most unbelievable mm-hmm. thing that people have ever been able to watch in their living room mm-hmm. that, that wasn't made as a movie. Um, so, so I think that's a good thing right now. The game has been upped by everybody. The game has been upped by everybody. And I think that, that that for content creators is wonderful. And then I think that that the unit economics are going to go into pseudo-limbo shift, right? Like, 
And they have to be thought about when you're negotiating your content deals up front. So, for example, with Netflix, they do buyouts, long-term buyouts relative to what you would get in syndication for various shows. And I think that that model is going to slowly you know, work itself out. And I think that that's where all the sort of agents and, and, and multiple players get involved and try to get tricky and, mm-hmm. and bright. Right now, they can make enormous amounts of money selling through the old system. But as the new system works itself out, I think it'll just gently and, shift and over. And lastly on this thing, what about format? Like things that are going to be created. Now you, you were talking about, you know, you dump all the shows at once, you do different things. VR is too early, but is there a content format you see emerging, a different content format? I don't know. Because Snapchat's kind of a content format. Yeah, I mean, different. I think I, I was thinking about like vertical video mm-hmm. um, as a content format. Mm-hmm. Um, and What's I've, vertical video? Ver, well, Snapchat, vertical video. Oh, vertical holding video. Your, oh, holding, okay, holding your okay, phone right, uh, right. upright. I think there's some content within that vertical video distribution channel that that could be somewhat interesting and differently consumable. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what Instagram's done with their stories as well, like I think that, that lends itself. I think the I think we're going to see a lot more higher quality live content over time in mm-hmm. the, in in the digital domain. Yeah. Because um, I I think Facebook's putting a lot of energy and, and effort. What do you think into, about what Twitter's trying to do with the NFL and everything else? I think it's a pretty cool experience. Yeah. Um, I, I actually somebody was asking me what's going to happen to Twitter, and I yeah. said, "What's going to happen to Twitter?" Actually? <laughs> I said, <laughs> "I think the the most interesting thing. I, I actually think that content streaming uh, with conversation associated with it. I think it's it's, it's a pretty compelling uh, product move, and so I." Th- I think things like that will persist. So what's going to happen to Twitter, Ashton? Being one of its most, well, you and Donald Trump are some of its so, best-known citizens. Contrary to popular belief, I've never had a dollar invested in Twitter. <laughs> um, I wish I had, uh-huh. uh, it, which was another thing that sort of spurred my investing. I was like, mm-hmm. wait, if I can affect the yeah. audience growth, what's going to happen to Twitter? So it looks like everybody's kind of bowing out, and it looks like even the Salesforce board is, is pushing Mark to bow out as well. Mm-hmm. So... That leaves the company in a really sort of tricky position at this point. Someone who uses the platform and loves it, obviously. So either they roll out some product things that really start fixing it quickly um, and ramp up their revenue, or they're in deep, 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 deep trouble. Hmm. Uh, And and you know, it's sort of like it's interesting. Like so that you know, Jack was in there, and then Ev Williams came in, and then Dick Costello came in, and Mm -hmm. now Jack is back in. And it takes, with a company of that size, yeah. it takes like a year plus to actually start to see some of the products that are being developed by the new Any team to yeah. roll out, right? Like even since Jack's been in, did he have, like, has he had enough time to like get the staff? I haven't, by the way, I haven't talked to him at all about this, so I don't, I don't know anything. Has he had time to even get the staff in order to actually build the products and then yeah. to roll out the products that are actually going to affect the platform in a positive manner? The most interesting product I've seen come out is the NFL product. Yeah, um, it's pretty cool. Might be too late. Maybe. And, and I think Twitter sort of suffered from, in the beginning, it was a really intimate environment that you could go to and get one-to-one, one-to-few, one-to-many mm-hmm. feedback loops. And it was a conversation. It was an open-faced conversation that was going on, which I thought made the platform extremely compelling. And then it got inundated by people just trying to sell you stuff mm-hmm. and or by media organizations just trying to post links to to drive you out. Now, had deep linking existed 
then, they probably would have held a lot of that content on platform. Right. Um, and then I think that because they went public when they went public, they were sort of forced to try to drive revenue really early and then lost that, yeah. that you know, the product revs that were necessary. And the platform became this like non-intimate platform. And then all the trolls arrived. Trolls showed up, started beating everybody up. So then it became a platform where you couldn't have that honest conversation. And then, you know, Jack's come back in and is trying to do some things uh, around around media and actually embrace the media platform that it's become. But I don't know. I mean, that's another platform that maybe could really benefit from some anti-troll AI that mm-hmm. would that well, would help the platform. Many people think that for sure. It's certainly it's certainly more fun in again. a way that that is very hard for it. It's also one of the most emotionally demented companies in Silicon Valley of so many, but they really are. There's so much emotionality in that company from the very beginning, which I think is... But, but there's also emotionality cooked into the product, right? Yeah, everything about it is... I mean, it is the, if you could see into the brain of society platform. Yes, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. And when you look at it, you might be scared of what the brain of society looks like. Oh, I am every day, every time <laughs> Donald Trump tweets. Um, but talk about very. We'll finish up talking about other things you think are promising in investment. Are you self-driving car guy? Or are you? Uh, I love it. Uh, do you like the vertical thing I wrote about recently? That Uber's thinking of a vertical helicopter um, kind of experience. So, yeah, so I think I think that, lift and takeoff vehicles. Okay, so I I love self-driving vehicles. Um, I think it's brilliant. Are you invested? Um, no, I'm not investing in any individual company. Um, I'm an investor in Tesla mm-hmm. on, on the public market. But I, I, like the self-driving mode is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Now, I liken it to a cruise control right now where you kind of always still have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. You really still have to pay attention. Like really have to pay attention. Really? But it's cruise control. That being said, I think that the self-driving car movement is inevitable and I think it's wonderful. I actually think for semi-trucks, I've looked at a couple of companies. And, and I know Uber acquired Auto, which is a, which is a mm-hmm. semi-truck. I think it's unbelievable for that. I mean, it's just open freeway, uh, creating mass efficiencies in that market. It's great. And by the way, the beauty of it is when one person gets in a car accident and they're driving, the person that learned the lesson might be dead. Uh, When a self-driving car gets into an accident, which will happen, every car gets smarter. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and I think for traffic congestion, I think for automobile accident deaths, I think I think it's going to be revolutionary as long as lawmakers don't kill it. Right, um, they could. No, they won't. They could, but I don't think they will. Yeah. What else do you like? You know what I really love is voice interface. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this Amazon Echo I and love it's, the it, Echo. It's, I married mine. I don't know. It's unbelievable. Totally. Uh, and I think obviously Google's just launched theirs, and I'm sure Apple has one mm-hmm. in the pipeline because um, I think that you can't miss that market. I think that's going to be an extraordinary like. If there's anything from a hardware perspective that I've seen mm-hmm. that could have the same value from an investor perspective as what the smartphone had and the app ecosystem had, uh, it could be an ecosystem of applications relative to voice interface. Yeah. Um, I invested in a company called Wit AI that sold early that was just building pipes for voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw it relatively early and thought about it with the, with the mobile phone. But now that these devices exist, they're unbelievable. And I think that there's a whole ecosystem of use case that could be relative to that. And there's a, there's a whole other ecosystem of hardware that could be relative to that. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's no reason why I can't just say make the coffee and have my coffee be made. Right. Like, I, don't, I, I shouldn't have to go do all the business right. or feed the dogs. And it right. sh- you should be able to just feed the... I think there's a lot of just Once sort of... the device is in place. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, now that Google's is out, I'm very interested to play with their yeah. version of it because it... What was it called? Allo. There you go. So because it knows so much about my personal context and my mm-hmm. relationships, and I, 
I'd be hard pressed to believe that Facebook at some point in time wouldn't launch Absolutely. one of these as well, given it has such great contextual understanding of my relationships. And so it's going to be interesting. I, I was thinking about putting the Google one in my office and I've got the Echo at home. So like, you know, when we need to order things for the house or whatever, the stuff on Prime, it's kind of wonderful having it in the house. And we have connected the lights and the TV and the whole, mm-hmm. the whole shebang, which is a little annoying still there because it's not worked out. But I think that platform is going to be an extraordinary ecosystem yeah. for growth. Yeah. Anything else? Food? Health? I think... There's a lot of opportunities in health. Uh, I'm not smart enough about it to really talk about it uh, a lot, but I'm looking at a lot of things in the space. Mm -hmm. Um, In the sciences, just in general, I think there's some extraordinary stuff that's happening. We we invested in a company called Emerald Cloud Lab Mm -hmm. that built a a laboratory in the cloud. It's almost like what AWS is, Mm -hmm. uh, but for scientists, so that all of their experiments can be done under perfect control. And so they have a software uh, front end that scientists can use or laboratories or universities can use to affect whatever in vitro experiments they want to affect. And because uh, there's so much uh, fall off in capacity to, to create redundancy in whatever scientific experiments you're doing, this creates perfect controls every single time. So mm-hmm. you have absolute redundancy. Wow, that's um, so we think that that's really exciting. And uh, there's a company called Benchling that's doing a lot of genetic engineering stuff in, in a similar fashion. So you uh, are smart enough to get into that? Very, very yeah. hesitantly. Yeah, because you don't want a therapist <clears throat> happening to you, do you? It's a little, uh, whenever you get into those, like it, for me, consumer, it's like that consumer is my domain expertise. Right. I am a consumer, so I can right. really try the product and understand it, which mm-hmm. is one of my important thresholds in yep. you know, investing in these companies. But some of these things are, they're almost too exciting to not, to yeah. not try to make right. work. Very last question, then we have to go. What mistake have you made as an entrepreneur? We could argue that you're an entrepreneur. What, what mistake have you made? I, a lot of people listening are wanting to be entrepreneurs. And what, would you, what did you do about it? I'm very, 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 very loyal uh, as an entrepreneur. Um, and probably like stick with people and things when the writing's on the wall, that it's not going to work. Um, because I have this, I have a sort of absolute optimist perspective on things, and it's really hard for me to like pull the plug. And I'm so founder friendly that even sometimes when companies should just sell, uh, I'm like, no, you have a vision for it, you want to do it, mm-hmm. and if you fail doing it, then you fail do- trying to do the thing that you want to do. And I've sort of grown to realize that in some cases there's an outcome that's better with a reset, whether it's a reset with an employee that isn't working out where you go, listen, you're, you're not thriving here and I want you to thrive as a person and I want you to thrive in your career. I, I need to like do a reset on that. It actually, sometimes telling people no is being a better friend than telling people yes. Well, that's a good thing to end on. Ashton can say no. I think you'll probably still be an optimist, would be my guess. Anyway, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so Thank much. You. That was full of lots of fascinating things. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, include some really fantastic interviews I've done with investor Aileen Lee, Uber board member Bill Gurley, and Walker & Company CEO Tristan Walker, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. And we have some great news for our podcast fans. This week, we have two bonus podcasts for you. Tomorrow, we'll have an extra episode of Recode Media with Peter Kafka. And on Wednesday, you'll get an extra episode of Recode Decode, where I talk with U.S. Secretary of Commerce, Penny Pritzker. To be sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to our shows on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
In addition to Recode Decode and Recode Media, there's also Two Embarrassed Ass, which I host with Lauren Good of The Verge, and Recode Replay, where you can hear audio from all our live events. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. Tune in then. 